today we are in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. And um, as we have been looking through, looking, making our way through the book of Nehemiah, this book that is about this, this seemingly ordinary man who's been called to do an extraordinary thing, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, these walls that have been burned down and broken for more than a generation uh, we've been doing so, as, as Dustin men- mentioned, in this season of rebuilding and reset here at Refuge. And, you know, we got some good news this morning, and we've been in, we've been in real need of that good news, because a season like this uh, uh, can feel exhausting. Um, and, or maybe a better word sometimes is, is disheartening or, or even discouraging, I know that none of us like to, to talk, about the, talk about or think about the fact that we really are still in the midst of a pandemic, but it, it really is true. It's still going on. We're still having to deal with the effects of that, and it's disrupted. Uh, it's been disrupted for all of us in many different ways um, here at the church, also in our personal lives. And so for some of us, I mean, we've seen how it's affected our employment, and so some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have lost coworkers that we loved and, and, and enjoyed working alongside. Uh, for all of us, in some ways, it's affected our relationships as we've seen where people have started to, to go down some interesting paths, um, depending on what their inputs are, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, for several of us, we've lost loved ones which is the most tragic thing of all. And if that wasn't bad enough, in all of that, we've been experiencing this while we've become increasingly divided culturally on just about every major and minor social and political issue imaginable. If I brought up, a, if I give an opinion to two groups of pe- to two different people, it's likely that I'm going to get I'm going to be told I'm wrong in four different ways. And so, I've got to be honest. There are days when I see some of what people I know, I've known for decades, literally decades, people I went to middle school with, I see what they post on social media. And when, I, and when I make the mistake of reading the news, um, when I uh, have a conversation in my neighborhood, do you know how I feel sometimes? Exhausted, disheartened, discouraged. And in the church, this is, a, this is especially challenging for us when we're trying to build this thing that we've called gospel culture here at, at Refuge, this, this idea of a culture where our experiences, where everything that we do in some way is saturated with the gospel. Gospel culture in that sense, or as, as we're going to be fleshing out and talking about more as we, as we progress, this idea of disciples who are, who are making disciples, so living on mission together in this very real and practical sense, this kind of culture is, is hard won 
because it's so contrary to everything else that we experience in the world, including in the church, which tends to have a very consumeristic mindset in, in many instances. And, and because it is so contrary to what we experience everywhere else, that means that, that the world is naturally going to be opposed to it. And that also means that we're going to be prone to discouragement as we seek to develop this kind of culture and as we seek to progress this mission that God has called us to, uh, both personally and as a church. Um, and, and we're going to, be, and we're going to ha- be at risk of this when it seems like it's failing or that for every good step forward we take, it seems like we're, we're knocked back another two or three or ten. And so as we look at Nehemiah this morning, here's my hope for us all. That when we face opposition, when we are tempted to become weary and discouraged and disheartened, that we wouldn't grow weary, that we wouldn't give up, that instead we would turn to Jesus to find gospel hope in the midst of discouragement. And so how do we do that? Well, there are three principles from our text that I want us to focus on as we look at it today. And those three are that first, we need to consider the source of our discouragement. That second, we need to bring our discouragement to God. And third, that we need to remind one another of the gospel in our discouragement. So let's pray, and then we will uh, we'll get into the text. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that... Um, Thank you that we are here, that we are able to worship together, that you have have brought every person in this room for your purposes and for your glory. God, I pray that you would uh, be made much of um, in our worship today. Um, Help me to be faithful and uh, and true, and and please let only the, the, the best and most faithful things that I say today be remembered and everything else be ignored entirely. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so looking, we're going to start in verses 1 through 3 uh, with that first principle that we need to consider the source of our discouragement. So starting in verse 3, and um, just as a point of order, um, I'm committing a great sin in our church today because I'm not using the ESV. I'm sorry, Dustin. Uh, So, I'm going to be reading from the CSB today, which is great, accurate, faithful translation, Um, just a little different flavor today. So, so with that out of the way, um, here we go. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, What are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from mounds of rubble? And then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was, the, who was beside him, said, Indeed, if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. And so here we have Sanblat and Tobiah the Ammonite returning to the narrative of Nehemiah. These two, along with Geshem the Arab, are the primary antagonists of, of God's people in this particular moment. And they are mockers. They are scoffers who ridicule the Jews' efforts to rebuild the walls of the city. 
They are the kind of fools that the psalmist said that we are blessed to not sit in the company of in Psalm 1-1. And regarding Sanblot in particular, if truly there was a, an, an arch-villain in this story, if, if Nehemiah had a nemesis, he's it. When tempting, and, 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 a, and a big piece of that comes down to, to his reaction. You see that there. Because when the walls are being rebuilt, when progress is being made, what does he do? He becomes furious, and he ridicules them. He, he mocks every effort that they make. And why does he do this? Well, it's tempting to read the, this passage and think that Sanballat that his opposition to the walls being rebuilt was motivated out of um, historical relationships. To read his mockery as though he was a descendant of one of the nations that was previously ruled by Israel at the height of its power. And if Jerusalem's walls were restored, then it could become a great power once more. And certainly there's a degree to which at least that last piece, that if its walls were restored, it had the ability to recover and to become something more than a ruined shell of what it once was. While that makes for good storytelling, it's, it's not entirely accurate. Because the historical and biblical evidence suggests that Sanballat was likely descended from one of the northern tribes of Israel himself. In other words, he's persecuting his own people here. Far off descended, but still one of his own people. So his opposition may well have been, have been based in something that's far more familiar to us in our time. Based in power, in status, and, and most likely some money too. See, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria at the time, and presumably Judah and Jerusalem would have been under his dominion prior to Nehemiah showing up and taking over as governor of that territory. If the walls were rebuilt, and if Nehemiah truly was there as an agent of the king, then Jerusalem was being stripped from his authority. His power was being reduced. His status was being diminished. And his bank account was getting a little bit smaller, too, because taxes. Because his power, his status, all of this was threatened, he lashed out in anger. He hurled insults at the people. He mocked their efforts. He puffed himself up in front of the, Samar the, the other Samarians and Samaritans and, and, uh, and the other power players of the region. But really, at the end of the day, when you read this, this reads like he's having a giant hissy fit as a way to dishearten the people, as a way to give up. It's like a five-year-old having a temper tantrum because they can't have a cookie. And this is something that we see all through the scriptures and all through history, that whenever people are committed to God's work, they can expect opposition. The early church faced it with the first Christians being driven out of Jerusalem when persecution arose. Paul's ministry was characterized by it first before he was a Christian when he was the instrument of persecution and then as the, the persecuted one himself when he went, every town he went in seemed to end up in a riot. Um, the life of the church in general from the late first through the, through the early fourth centuries was by and large marked by periods of intense persecution. But in all of that, even as people were tempted to give up, even as they were tempted to lose heart, as they were discouraged from their work, the gospel 
continued to go forward. God's work didn't stop. God was building his kingdom as people believed the good news of of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the reason that I bring all of that up is we have to remember that opposition to the gospel has always existed and will always exist until the day that Jesus returns to make all things new. And it also means that opposition is going to come in many different forms. So in some parts of the world today, opposition looks like outright persecution. This is what we see uh, happening to brothers and sisters in Christ in the Middle East, in China, in India, and, and many other countries. We are truly blessed here in the United States that we don't experience true persecution, no matter what you may have read on a meme on Facebook this week. We have the ability to speak the truth in love. We have the ability to worship Jesus freely and openly. We have the ability to go anywhere and proclaim the good news of Jesus, and we need to be thankful for that, and we need to recognize that. But that doesn't mean that we live in a culture that is free from opposition to the gospel. There is opposition to the gospel here and now, including in this, in this greater Nashville area, this, this place that is uh, one of the meccas of, of the Christian industrial complex. I mean, we have publishers, we have, we have record labels, we have everything here, and it's still here too. Christians get the side eye from those who know very little about what we believe or only hear, about, hear the noisier voices out in the ether. There's a suspicion, an increased suspicion about Christians from those outside the church as they see increased disparities between our profession of faith and our practice. There is an ever-escalating opposition to the truth itself, right down to the very idea that there is truth at all. And that itself is not a new problem, because that's been the problem that we've been facing ever since the garden, ever since that moment when the serpent asked the first woman, did God really say? In our day, opposition to the truth rears its head most prominently when, when truth conflicts with our culture's most dearly held value. And that value is personal autonomy, or maybe let's actually call it what it really is, radical individualism, it, which is a misguided and entirely sinful belief that my personal choices and my freedoms are what are most important, that I must be free to do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, no matter the consequences. And the creed of this is, my body, my choice, my happiness, my truth. We're swimming in this ethos, in this, in this creed, every moment of every day. We can't escape it. It is all around us. It's in the news. It's in books. It's in social media. It's in music. It's in movies. It's everywhere. And, but, but we can recognize it for what it is. And we also need to recognize that, the, that it is entirely possible for us to fall into that trap as well. And that, to me, is, is one of the most discouraging things about the state of the world. As a Canadian living here in America land, a place that I am blessed to live with all the freedoms that, that we get to enjoy that are a gift for us 
That is where I see the greatest opposition to the gospel at this very moment. And I see it so often, not even coming from people, the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel message. I see it coming from our professing brothers and sisters in Christ who seem overly concerned with those freedoms that we are blessed to enjoy, with their own rights, their own freedoms, their own choices, their own whatevers. But if we believe the gospel, if we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have to remember that we are not our own. We were bought by, for a price. We belong to God, not to ourselves. And that means that the freedoms that we get to enjoy, they are secondary to that at best, and we must live accordingly. In other words, and to, and to quote uh, the, the member of my household who's one of the many members of my household who's much smarter than me, uh, maybe we need to stop throwing tea in the harbor for five minutes and, and remember the gospel. Maybe we need to repent of the ways that we have opposed the gospel ourselves. That's a difficult thing to say, and I don't say that lightly. All those who've been here for a long time, you, you all know me, and, I, and, and I'm not, uh, and, and so I don't say it lightly. But think about, but how do we know where this discouragement is coming from? How do we know where opposition is truly coming from? Well, the key is to look, think about our inputs. Well, what are we reading? What are we watching? What are we listening to? Who and what is influencing our thinking? What is shaping our hearts? What is causing us to become discouraged and disheartened? What puts us at risk of becoming opponents of the gospel itself? And so, as, uh, so something that I would encourage you to do is take some time tonight as a, uh, on your own and, and as a, as with, your, with your family, with friends. Uh, talk about this. Consider, consider what your inputs are. What is shaping your heart? What is affecting you in these ways? Talk about those with friends and family. Talk about them in your community groups as well this week. Now, we might not have a nemesis like Sanballat was for, for Nehemiah, but there are forces at work to oppose the gospel mission that we're called to, forces that are seeking to divide, uh, to divide us and to drive us toward discouragement. So what should we do when we discover these sources of opposition and discouragement? Well, we need to bring our discouragement to God. And that's what we see as we look at verses 4 and 5. So we get this, this narrative of, of Sanballat and Tobiah trying to mock and ridicule the, the Jews to stop them in their work, and immediately we see this after. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads, and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their, their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So as Nehemiah shared this mocking and jeering uh, of these knuckleheads, he stops midstream and he breaks into prayer. 
And this is a very specific type of prayer, one that we frequently see in Scripture, but is jarring for us nonetheless. It's what's called an imprecatory prayer. And this is a prayer that basically calls down God's judgment upon his enemy, of the enemies of his people. And we see examples of this in Psalms 5, 35, 55, 58, 59, 69, 79, 109, 137, and 139 as well. And in these Psalms, the, the author of these, in the majority of cases being David, also known as the man after God's own heart, He's essentially praying a curse on his enemies. The language in these prayers is visceral. It's shocking to us. They are prayers where the anger of the one praying is palpable. But these kind of prayers aren't mere venting. And we make a mistake when we read them that way. This isn't, this isn't just him getting something off of his chest. This is an appeal to God's power and authority to his sovereign control over all the universe, to his sufficiency to control all things and to fulfill his plans. So as we think about this, as we think about bringing our discouragement to the Lord, the big question that we should be asking is this. Should we pray like that today? Is it okay for us to pray pray these kinds of prayers Um, Or is this something that we need to leave behind? And there are some Christians who would say absolutely not. To do so would be in conflict with Jesus' call for us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. But truthfully, I, I don't believe the full counsel of Scripture supports that. Imprecatory prayer is modeled in both the Old and New Testaments. I mean, we see Jesus himself flat out calling down judgment in Matthew 23 and his woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and Revelation 6.10 also follow that same pattern of calling for judgment, calling God to remember this. Um, And if we believe that all Scripture is truly inspired by God and profitable for us today, then we should not dismiss the existence of these prayers and petitions. Instead, we can see these as a way to properly follow Scripture's command to be angry and not sin. We need to turn to God in our discouragement. We need to turn to Him in our distress to bring Him our discouragement. And Christians in, in our context will struggle with this because we tend to be pretty unbiblical about anger. Generally speaking, most of the literature wants to rush past it, to ignore it, to minimize it as much as we can. And that is what happens 99% of the time when, people, when anyone quotes Ephesians 4.26, which says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. And so our application is, well, because I don't want to sin, which is, which is a right thing to do, and I don't want the, the devil to have an opportunity to gain a foothold uh, in, in my heart and my mind, I better just try to get over that as quickly as I can. The irony, of course, is, is that in trying to minimize our anger, minimizing what we are feeling in response to opposition, is that in doing so, we are, in fact, giving the devil an opportunity to ensnare us in bitterness, to let that anger that we feel about things that are genuinely wrong to consume us. 
So if we want to take that command seriously, and if we want to learn from the example of Nehemiah and from the rest of Scripture, we must remember that the safest and healthiest place to direct our anger and our frustration, especially in times when we are threatened to become discouraged, is to the Lord. And it's not like the anger we experience in those situations is a surprise to him anyway. They're not shocking to him. God knows every thought that we have. He knows every word that we're tempted to speak, and he knows them all before we do. There is no way for us to shock God. You can't do it. But you know what you can do? You can trust him with it. You can give him that anger, that frustration. You can say to him, Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do here. I know this is wrong. This person's actions are wicked. Don't let it go unpunished. Don't let it be ignored. Do whatever you have to do to make this right. I've, I've, full disclosure, I've prayed prayers like that before. Like in the last month. And it's genu- genuinely helpful for me within reason. When I rem- and it's, it's helpful when I remember the good news that we already know the answer to those prayers. That God has already promised that, yes, every injustice and every evil that is committed in this world will receive its full and righteous penalty. That no wicked deed will be left unaccounted for. None will be overlooked. Everything, no matter how seemingly insignificant, will be dealt with. Every wrong will be made right. And to, to quote that oft over overused uh, word from, from Tolkien, every sad thing will come untrue. But that doesn't mean that we're going to see the answer right away or even in our lifetime. There are injustices and evils that, for the time being at least, the Lord has seen fit to allow to continue. And when we see these, we, we should be angry about them. But we can take our anger and our frustration. We can put it in the hands of the Lord. We can say, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't know why it's happening at all. But I know that I can trust you to do what is right. So however you're going to do that, whether now or in the future, make it right. And in doing so, we can find the will to keep working just as the Jews did in their work to rebuild the wall. So when you experience opposition in your life and ministry, and, and remember, all of us, if we, have, if we are in Christ, we, are, on, we have, are in ministry right now, wherever we are. When you are tempted to discouragement and anger and frustration, don't minimize it. Recognize it for what it is. Recognize its source and bring that discouragement and distress to the Lord. Trust Him with it. Rely on His sovereign power and goodness toward his people. But even as we do that, we have to remember that taking our discouragement to the Lord doesn't mean that, that what is causing it, that opposition, is going to stop overnight. In fact, sometimes it increases, and this is what we see in verses 7 and 8, that when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonite, and Ashdodites heard that the repair of the, to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. The work continued, but the opposition escalated. The wall kept going, and, they be, and so their, the people's enemies began to plot against them. And how did they respond? 
In verse 9 it says, So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. So their answer was first and foremost prayer. In their distress, in their discouragement, the people turned to the Lord. They prayed for his favor, for his protection, his intervention, and they kept doing the work. But opposition continued to increase, and with it, that discouragement did as well. With it being said in Judah that the strength of the laborers fails since there's so much rubble, we will never be able to rebuild the wall. The people were losing heart. Sanballat, Tobiah, and their crew continued to frustrate the work, even as it was made. Opposite, the opposition became so great that in verse 12, we see that the people who arrived to help said repeatedly, everywhere you turn, they attack us. Can you feel the weight of that? The burden that they, they felt was real. It was that discouragement that comes from unceasing opposition. The people were weary. The discouragement was becoming overwhelming. Everywhere they turned, their enemy was right there at hand. Have you ever felt like that? This felt this weight that just won't seem to lift, this oppression that is unrelenting. When it comes, and it does come, it's tempting to give up and to be consumed by it. But listen to how Nehemiah responded in verses 13 and 14, which give us our final principle for today. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the walls at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by, their, by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. His response is what provides us with that third and final principle, that as we seek to find gospel hope in the midst of discouragement, that when opposition comes, even as we take it to the Lord, when we see friends and loved ones at risk of being consumed by that discouragement, we need to remind one another of the gospel. Don't be afraid, he said. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. But why would that make any difference? Why would that cast out fear? Well, it's for the same reason that we bring our discouragement to the Lord in the first place. It's because he can do something about it. Because he's good. Because he is for us. Because God loves us. And all of that is true. God does love us. He loves all of us. He has a plan for this world, a plan that includes us by grace, a plan that cannot be thwarted. No opposition can stand against him. Nothing can overcome him. And if we ever had any doubt of that, we need to remember the gospel, that Jesus, God the Son, took on human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross as Philippians 2 says. And Jesus died. He really died. He was buried in a tomb, but death couldn't hold him. And so on the third day following his death, this, this, this 
stone sealing the tomb rolled away, and Jesus rose again. And as Philippians 2 continues, it says, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the good news that we have today. That is who we serve. That is the God that is with us and for us. And so we need to remember that. We need to remind one another of that every moment of every day. So Jesus is the one. This Jesus is the one that we point one another to in our discouragement and when we face opposition. And we do so not remembering simply what Jesus has done in the past, but we do it looking forward to what Jesus will do in the future so that uh, to that day when we will see him in his glory as king of kings and lord of lords, that day when sin is going to come to an end. And this is one of the reasons that we celebrate communion here every week, which is, uh, uh, which is something for, that we believe is a, is a family meal. So if you've, been, if you've made a confession of faith, if you've been baptized, um, you're going to be invited to do that shortly. But by remembering the Lord's blood shed and his body broken for us, we are saying, as Nehemiah did, remember our great and awe-inspiring Lord. And that's also why when we do take communion, we also encourage anyone here who is not a follower of Jesus or who has questions about Jesus to hang back, to come and talk to any of us. So whether it's, whether it's Dustin, whether it's uh, the person sitting right next to you in, in the room here, anyone, all of us would love to talk with you, pray with you, and encourage you as you consider the greatness of Jesus. And we also remind ourselves of the gospel and of the greatness of Jesus in our community group as we talk about scripture together and as we, as, and as we talk about how God is at work in our lives, where we need prayer, where we are struggling, where we're finding moments of joy and seeing God at work in many different ways. And this is why we also practice something in most, if not all, of our community groups called honor time. And it's this time when we get to speak about how we're seeing God's work in someone else's life. And so, for me, in every group time, no matter where the conversation has gone, this really is my favorite time of it. Because it's not, and it's not when someone says something, something to me, uh, it's what I enjoy about it is seeing how each person's body language changes when someone says, this is how I see God at work. There's this weight that comes off that's lifted in that moment, and it's huge. It's an amazing gift. So where do you need to be reminded of the greatness of our God today? Where do you need your hope in the gospel rekindled? Where can you encourage a, dis a disheartened brother and sister today? Take those opportunities that you know exist, that the Lord has provided. And if you're not sure, pray for those opportunities, because God will provide those. So friends, I know this, this season has been, to put it lightly, exhausting. I'm, I'm right there with you. There's so much around us that threatens to rob us of joy, even as there's good news to tell. So much standing in the way of the work that God has called us to here in this community and around the world. And when we face opposition, which we are going to face, let's not give up. Instead, let's turn to Jesus. Help one another find gospel hope as we identify the sources of our discouragement. Take those to the Lord. 
and remind one another of this great and awe-inspiring God that we serve. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have the, the opportunity to remember your greatness. Thank you that you are truly great and that the greatest proof of that that we have is the gospel itself, that Jesus came into this world, that he lived perfectly for us, that he died in our place, and that he rose again, and that everyone, regardless of background, regardless of anything that they have done, that all of us are welcome. We're free to come to you. We're welcomed into your presence by faith, and that is the most encouraging and, and heartening thing that we can know and that we can experience. God, I pray that you would protect us from discouragement, that you would help us to see gospel hope in the midst of so many things that oppose your work and so many things that threaten to rob us of joy, and that we would continue on in faith and hope and joy until the day the work is done. In Jesus' name, amen.